0: Welcome to Kansas is Lit on ksf db Online Radio. I'm your host, Waskar Medina, Lit Editor for 785 Magazine and the current Poet Laureate of Kansas. Today's guest is Karen Miriam Goldberg. She is a 2009 to 2013 Kansas Poet Laureate, and she's the author of 24 books, including How Time Moves, New and Selected Poems, Miriam's Well, a novel Needle in the Bone, a nonfiction book. On the Holocaust, The Sky Begins at Your Feet, a bi-regional memoir on cancer and community, and the award-winning Chasing Weather. Founder of Transformative Language Arts, she leads writing workshops widely, coaches people on writing and write livelihood, and consults on creativity. She leads Your right Livelihood, a training on doing the work you love, with Laura Packer and Brave Force writing and singing for your life retreats with Kelly Hunt. Thank you for being with us today, Karen, Mirren Goldberg.
1: Thank you so much. And thanks for the great intro. And one small thing, it's brave voice. Although sometimes it is a brave force because finding our voice can sometimes really require a little force of, of courage and leaping around.
0: That's very true. It must have been a Freudian slip because I, I do consider you a, a brave force in, in poetry. <laughs>
1: Oh, thank you so much, Weskar.
0: So how, how are you doing? How has how, how um, this year treated you?
1: Well, I think it would be an understatement to say it's been a strange year, but I'm doing well. I think that living in this pandemic time is a little like when you're at a hospital and somebody you love is very, very ill and you're gathered with everybody you love and everything is much more tender, much more scary much more precious than usual, and we just pray and hope for a good outcome, right?
0: That's very true. Everything has so much more weight, I feel. Every conversation, every encounter that I have, those moments uh, seem to have a bit more vibrancy right now.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So I'm really excited because I hope you'll be sharing from your new book with us today.
1: yeah. Absolutely, there's a lot of poems and I have a lot I can share.
0: I do have a question for you. In the introduction um, to your your new book, it, you talk about dwelling in what we don't know and uh, mm-hmm. not only of the earth but of ourselves and anyone else's being. Why is that important to do for us?
1: Well, I think it speaks to us in so many ways. As writers, Every time we write, we're kind of diving into something we don't know, or at least we hope we're doing that. My first thought whenever I begin a poem is, I have no idea how to do this, and I love that. I hope that I never lose that Um, because from there, I can just start playing with words on paper and following rhythms and see where I'm led. And for all of us, I think particularly as we get older, we come to unlearn as much as we learn. And we come to see more and more how, you know, just like us and the trees and the sky, a whole lot is in motion all the time. And a whole lot is kind of lit from within with its own
0: mystery. I love that you brought up trees because there's a poem that I, I can, it's my favorite poem in your new collection, God in the Trees. Is that a poem you'd be willing to share with us today?
1: I would love to. I wrote that many years ago and then revised and revised and revised it recently, so I'll read it right now. God in the Trees First God was in the trees. Don't ask me how I knew. I just did. The tree would shake. I would shiver. Where I grew up, we measured our days in highway exits, the seconds of breath to hold in the flashing intervals of a tunnel but I fell in love with trees anyway. Sometimes the tree would blow against the window of the synagogue, and I would shiver again. A good coincidence, I told myself, for this to happen and what they told me was the house of God, although I knew the house was a tree, its legs flourishing downward to secret roots that drank from underground rivers rushing slow its arms holding up rooms full of birds shivering just like me as I watched the tree also from my bedroom window in Brooklyn or stood beneath it while I was supposed to be walking to school touching the bark asking in that chill that touched my spine God not to leave me the open canopy of leaf or bare branch to wrap around me like a prayer the words of god blowing through me without words
0: that's that's a divine poem uh, for oh, me thank p- you. personally i've always had that uh, experience with the wind as if it's traveling through me not not necessarily around me as if uh, mm. i'm i'm connected to that 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 movement of the air uh, is this a sensitivity you believe uh, poets may have and and, and or, or does everyone have the capacity to to experience the, the world that way
1: oh i think we all do and some pay more attention to it than others, but for me, I started writing um, when I was about 13 or 14, and it was trees and wind that drew me to the page, you know, as well as trauma and dysfunction and all kinds of other things, but I'm still writing about trees and wind because, you know, there's still what kind of what, what blows through us, what comes up around us, what shows us where we are.
0: I, I also write early on in, when I started writing poetry uh, from a, a, a place trying to heal or, or deal with, with trauma. Uh, do you still find yourself writing from that place? And, and I, I do, and I wonder if I ever won't.
1: I think that's a great way to say that. Um, and I would answer the same way. I do, <laughs> and I hope I won't ever won't, if that is a good sentence. You know, then again, the older that we get, and I'm on the other side of 60 now, so I'm starting to see little glimpses of what that can be, the more we fall apart. So there's a whole different kind of trauma, or at least the more we fall apart physically. Um, Through my two cancer bouts and all kinds of other losses and difficulty and just terrifying moments in life, I've just been thrown back to my journal. And even if what I write doesn't go anywhere beyond just me, there's so much to be said for what writing can give us if we come at it at the right way at the right time without re-traumatizing ourselves.
0: I think that is the the thing I learned probably recently. You know, I, I'm close to, to, to 40 at this point. Uh, my birthday will be in a couple of weeks. Oh, writing from that... Uh, that experience, or, or trying to to navigate an, an older experience, but not relive that experience, you know, from a distance, and uh, it's a it's a safe way to do it. Have you you found that space for yourself when, when writing about experiences that have, have been traumatic for yourself? You know,
1: absolutely. I but I have a trivial thing first. My birthday's in a few weeks too. When is yours?
0: December twelfth.
1: Okay, I'm the fourth. We're kind of close together in there, so <laughs> happy birthday to us. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, I've kind of gone in and out of many, many angles of writing and healing through my own experience as a writer and through developing and Uh, directing for many, many years the transformative language arts concentration at Goddard College, which was all about helping people find ways to use words out loud and on the page for healing and community building and other kinds of transformation. And what I find is that you have to have kind of the right, the right distance, the right space, the right perspective, which kind of brings us back to this book, How Time Moves, because more and more we find timing is everything. And there are ways that I can angle into maybe really difficult and overwhelming things that happened when I was a young woman now and kind of put them in a new narrative frame and start to see what I learned from them. And they kind of lose their bite over time. Hmm. And, you know, there's also times where I have experiences and I know, I'm just not ready yet. Like I'm in the middle of trying to conceptualize um, kind of a prose, poetry, perhaps mixed genre, we'll see what it is, book about my journey through eye cancer and how I'm learning to see and be in the world in a new way from what I've been through. And of course, all of us learn to see and be in the world in new ways if we pay attention to whatever life gives us. But where I'm at right now, I just kind of have glimpses of what I can write about and what I have to say. It takes time until finally you realize, okay, this is it. I don't know if you found this. Sometimes you just have to start writing and then you'll kind of find your way in.
0: Oh, I do. That is, um, you know, sitting sitting with the with the page, and and uh, even if it's a, a line, that is, uh, I've always viewed that as as as, as the first seed, planet, or the first step taken. You're listening to Kansas is Lit on KSEF. This is your host Wasker Medina. We will be back with more poetry after a quick pause. We're back with Karen Marion Goldberg, author of How Time Moves, New and Selected Poems. Karen, could you please share some more poetry with us today?
1: Okay, well I opened my book randomly and I will say How Time Moves is a whole new collection of poems about how time moves and how we time travel throughout our lives and uh sorry about the computer. I'll just say how we time travel throughout our lives and how memory and yearnings and grief and ecstasy and all of these things swirl together over time and change us. And what is time? What is timelessness? So I opened the book randomly and I landed on this page from the new collection. And I should back up and say, it's not just new poems, but then there's 100 pages of the best of my previous six books. So for me, it's a lot of poetry over the last 30 years about um, how all kinds of things moved in time and and so on so this poem in some ways speaks to perhaps a lot of my poems it's called you are never alone and it begins with a quote from William Stafford you turn your head that's what the silence meant you're not alone the whole wide world pours down and here's the poem how can you be alone anywhere the day ed- the day's edge into stifled blues and stars? The lake carves exuberance into rocks or forgets what sky made it and keeps remaking it. You are surrounded by the long history of air, each molecule abuzz with someone's need or fight for shelter or food beyond the odds, as well as each claw wing foot, striving, one lift or step at a time, to make a home out of nothing. Turtles hibernate between underground rivers, and six inches of dirt river-ferried here for geckos and starlings to cross. Layer upon layer of the atmosphere houses stories, charms, breathless ends, or beginnings where you, blown clear by the wind, turn your head to what falls swallows dipping sound into flight showing you here here here
0: thank you for sharing that poem William Stafford informs my poetry as well I find his his work uh, very important for me as a young poet but also as a poet in Kansas
1: yeah absolutely he's our patron saint isn't he
0: I you know Yes, yes, I, I put them I put them in in my three because for me, uh, Rilke is also one as well. So. Oh, I we love Rilke. I find starlings uh, beautiful. Mm-hmm. That that imagery in the work, lilies came up a couple of times. Is, is do you have a a direct connection to lilies? Is that just something I picked on picked up on because I love lilies?
1: Well, I don't know. I really. I have a connection to a lot of different flowers, and I kind of like the turn of the wheel of spring, like snowdrops and then sometime in April, you know, lilac um, and lily of the valley down low to the ground. It's one of my very favorites. And I love lilies, of course, and roses and peonies and peony season where everything's like exploding big around. (laughs) So, um, you know. I guess I just kind of steer toward flowers. And I do walks around. You know, I live in the country and, you know, with a bunch of flowers planted here. But I do walks in town to see specific things in bloom. So I always have a blossoming magnolia tree walk, which I have to just drop everything and do because magnolias usually get frozen out within a few days of bursting forth. Of course, I do lily walks, too.
0: The, the walking, because uh, I, I walk sometimes uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to, you know, sitting sitting with, when, I'm, when I'm writing and I, I need to take a break. Uh, what are some of the practices for you when, when you're in, in the process of writing, if you need to, to step away or get re-energized um, th- during the writing process?
1: Well, there's practices and there's also mindsets.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, one of my mindsets is I don't believe in writer's block. I think if something won't come, well... We're just not ready for that yet. And so when I hit those walls, I just tell myself, that's okay, Karen. You're just not smart enough to figure that out now. Go write something else and come back to it. And then if you sneak up on it, sometimes you'll find ways through. But I do a lot of walking. You know, just today I I spent an hour on the phone with somebody I was helping coach, and I paced back and forth the whole time. So sometimes it's like just indoor pacing. But I just find the rhythm of walking really helps me. I try to meditate, but then I want to stop meditating and go write something, so that's kind of a deal. And, you know, living, I've been living in this place for about 25 years, just south of Lawrence, where my husband grew up. His family has been here for about 150 years. And having that perspective and just being able to Be outside as much as possible and connect with this land and the sky is probably my biggest practice and i'd say for me it comes down to just simply be outside as much as possible when it's not freezing cold i'm out on my porch working
0: i do I, i do enjoy being outside as well too often for me i i end up stuck inside from the writing you know, um, and I, I've, I've tried to step out and, and be more comfortable writing in, in public. That Do you write at home only? Do you go places to write?
1: Well, I used to spend most of my time, my writing time, in, you know, bookstores, cafes, little coffee shops. Uh, although I have to say, back when I used to commute places by bus, buses are really good for riding trains, Um doctor's offices, any place you're trapped and needing to wait, although I think now cell phones have destroyed that for me because I'm looking at things instead of writing. But as I've gotten older, I've just kind of wanted to hang out at home and write on the porch more. And lucky for me, you know, life has conspired to keep me on the porch. (laughs) So it might be 100 degrees, I'll be on the front porch with a ceiling fan on, a floor fan and a big glass of ice water. You know, sweat pouring down my face. But there's something about being there and just feeling, you know, more vital, more alive, just more connected to the air, even if it's kind of intolerable, that helps me. All that said, I'm sure I will be writing in the coffee shops here and there in the future, too. What about you?
0: I really enjoy being at home when it comes to the editing process of writing, Mm -hmm. the trimming but when it comes to to sitting somewhere and writing, if if I've been at work all day, then and I don't want to go straight home, and I, I want to take a second to myself because you know having having a partner at home and and my son's at home sometimes and I, I there's this break in between this window I like to call it where I can go and um, and have for writing those those little sketches. Initially, I go to a coffee shop because uh, I I. I I'm not trying to be cliche, but it's it's easy for me to focus more because there's this, this background noise around me and this, this atmosphere that's going on. And I have to listen that much harder to myself. And I feel that creates a level of focus in me. And I the words tend to come out a little more direct and sharper in those moments.
1: Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I, I have to say that when my kids were little, I would do anything to get to a coffee shop to write because that kind of buzzing noise of things going on and then sometimes you know they use the blender and it's really loud but <laughs> still I can kind of get down into my own zone sometimes I listen to music and write and I just felt like I was encased in a little universe but as uh, my kids grew up and left although you know they keep coming back too that's another deal <laughs> and one is with us right now who'll be leaving again soon um, I've just kind of entered the stage in my life where in normal non-pandemic times, it's just me at home for long stretches. And it changes my relationship to writing and to my home. Because the, you know, whatever I need is right here.
0: Is that a, a, a blessing?
1: Yeah. And it's also just kind of one of those life twists and getting to a different place in life just having little quiet perches that I don't have to run out to find that they can be right here.
0: That sounds, that sounds wonderful. But
1: I did want to ask, you You know, I, I, I was determined when I had my first child, um, gosh, over 31 years ago, that I would not stop writing poetry. And all these women poets told me, yeah, once you have a baby, that's all going to go out the window for you. So like when, when my son was a few days old, I wrote a poem but what about for you? How do you balance being a father with being a poet?
0: My my son informs my poetry right now mm-hmm. in a way uh, it, I see differently. And it's interesting because he's become a bit of a, uh, a teacher to me. Children have such wider lenses than we do. I, I feel we, mm-hmm. as years come along, we develop filters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and these filters are, are ways that we can kind of Compartmentalize things with with children. It's it's they see everything and they ask all these questions. And he's he's kind of rewired my brain a little bit when I'm with him. So uh, I love the time we spend together. And there's there's work waiting to be written. Things I haven't observed in the way that he sees the world that really informs my poetry right now. And it is um, it's it's been very impactful for me. And um, I've I've softened up to the idea that I can learn from absolutely anyone at any age when it comes to 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 my poetry so he's been a a godsend for many reasons but you know creatively in that particular way the way that I view the world has has changed I I feel like I have this wider angled view of of the world around me you know because I have to be able to see it from his point of view as well because I'm trying to connect with him our time together is just us, and I, I don't write. I'm not I'm not reading. You know, if I do, it's after I lay him to bed. We read a little Harry Potter, and then and then <laughs> like you know thirty minutes of Harry Potter at night, and then that's my time to go write. I, I feel like I shared some some literature with him, and now it's time for my words. So it's um it's a very reciprocal experience with my son. I, I'm ne- I never feel like I have to steal time to write you know, when, when he's around, because what I'm, what I'm gaining when he's present and, I, and I'm there with him is inspiration. Yeah, I think
1: that's really beautiful. And that makes a lot of sense. And we can also kind of look at it as, um, well, I remember Keith Dennison, who's no longer with us, but he was a wonderful poet who brought poets together all over Kansas. He taught at Emporia State. He told me when I was pregnant, You know, you just let the kids crawl all over you, and you just keep writing, and they're going to give you so much material. But something that you said also made me think about this new poem I wrote, which, um, if you don't mind, I'd love to share. Please do. Yeah, and it's about how we are kind of the social agents for our children in some ways. We're like the, the language agents. You know, we're showing them what's what. And I was thinking about this Rilke quote, which you probably know as a lover of Rilke, where he said that, you know, we're always training ourselves and training our children to name what's in the space rather than just look at the space itself. Mm. And I was also thinking of this quote from the Talmud about how the Torah, sacred text in general, are black fire written upon white fire, like we're looking at the actual words on the page rather than that space around them where so much is alive. So this is called Teaching the White Fire. I taught my children to name all the things, a single cedar balancing one male cardinal on a high branch calling this, 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 I taught them refrigerator, windshield, look here, not there, for the doe and her fawn diving road to ravine. Listen to the lyrics, note the mile markers from Abilene to Lyman, and when the sun, that yellow blur at the end of our drive, leaves us again. I told them black fire stories what's engraved on pages or below a broken street light, where no one meets anymore to plot escape routes if they got caught in a dark forest without pebbles, or discovered a metaphoric baby to rescue from a real river of wailing sirens. I told them to wear their bravery even if they had to borrow it. But we were always white fire creatures, moving rain to fog, marsh to parking lot, the sucking mud clinging to our ankles while we search for our keys with cold fingers. When my children, now adults, call late at night, they want to know what I did not, could not teach, how it hurts to break the old stories, how stale bread turns back to crumbs and paper reverts to a single oak leaf dropping on their shoulder while the invisible, visceral warmth of the sun readies itself to fall off the earth again. In that caroling darkness where endings so mutable are beyond conjuring, all I can tell them is let your beautiful eyes adjust to the charcoal skies of loss. Feel what gives off all this fire, all this warmth, then walk that direction
0: that is absolutely remarkable thank thank you you. thank you so much i I, every word if 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 you don't mind if 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 i could possibly make a request for for a poem to end today's show the last light of the year i really i just i love the ending to that to that poem
1: the last light of the year in the house the heat kicks on the refrigerator hums a room steady The last hedge apple on the tree rolls down the roof, and the cat jumps on the table. The friend you love is all ashes now, waiting for you and others to scatter. The ideas you have about time, or what's right, are lighter than all that ash. See the budded ends of the cottonwood, months away from unfurling. It's like that, and also this, Green black etchings of cedar waver on the soft sky. Headlights from the crest of a hill angle into an empty room. Here, take note. Be still, good heart, bad heart. Don't be swayed by guessing which.
0: Thank you for for that offering of a poem. It, I feel like you've, you've, you've offered uh, some more grace to me and in, in my heart, I thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Waskar, and I love seeing your poetry here, there, and yonder, and you're just doing such a magnificent job in in representing Kansas and making new connections for writers in the state, and what it means to write from the state of place all over the world, so thank you.
0: Thank you, and if anyone wanted to Experiential work or to possibly to, pu- to purchase a, a book of poetry, uh, w- where could they, they find that at?
1: Well, they can definitely go to my website, which is KarenMiriamGoldberg.com, and that's C A R Y N, and then Miriam with two Rs, M I R R I A M G O L D B E R G. And if they want to purchase a book, they can also just go to Meadowlark Press or the Raven Bookstore, and they can probably find those pretty easily online.
0: Thank you for this interview today, Karen. I appreciate it. Thank you so
1: much, Wesker.
0: If you'd like to be a guest on Kansas is Lit, you can email me at kansasislit at 785live.com. That's the number 7, number 8, number 5, live.com. Stay Lit, Kansas.